Hey, welcome to the CMO Whisper Show. I'm your host, Steve Olensky. Part marketing practitioner, part ad agency veteran, part journalist. I was a writer for Forbes for 10 years. I've had so many insightful conversations over the years with business leaders, to athletes, to celebrities, to, of course, CMOs. The only difference now is instead of sharing those insights through written form, I'm doing it this way. My guest this week is Aubriana Lopez, head of data strategy, global product marketing, Samsung ads, an experienced multidiscipline marketer who's had the ability to grow her expertise throughout the ever-evolving nature of the media business with a focus on audience development, cross-functional measurement, and in-depth reporting and insights. What an incredible conversation I had with Aubriana Lopez. Hi, Steve. Thanks so much for having me. You are very welcome. And in a second, I'm going to get into when and how we met, which is a story in and of itself. But before we do that, I want to jump right into the four-letter word. And I'm not talking about that four-letter word that any of you might have been thinking about. Shame on you. The four-letter word I'm talking about is data. And that's very near and dear to your heart, of course, given your your role now and and your past roles. So I want to start with, and if you all remember, you know, the term big data, right? And how that was literally sweeping the world, marketers panicking in the streets, presumably, uh, wondering what to do with all this new influx of data and on and on and on. Well, fast forward to today. Now marketers, in a way, right, are facing a future with less data with the pending third-party cookie deprecation. So I want to jump in. I want to start with data, especially given your background. Looking back, last three, four, five years, right up to current time, what has changed when it comes to using data as part of an overall strategy? Well, you know, I think data sometimes gets this like very technical lens put on it. And really data is just opportunity, I like to think of it as, right? So it's an opportunity to know more, to learn more, to move quicker, and to make better connections and inferences. So I think data is vital and so important in our day-to-day life of marketing and advertising, but it's also super important in our day-to-day lives as human beings with our medicine and, and how we interact with the world. But we've seen a ton of change with data, how it's handled and and what's important to us as consumers, as well as what's important to us as brands and, and marketers who are just trying to you know, get our product or our service into as many hands as possible, make more awareness and make true connections, those emotional connections with consumers that drive them to purchase, right? So some of the big changes I can think of are really like, let's think of legislation. So you've got all of the legislation that has happened across the globe. You've got more privacy components that are coming into play, some state by state, even here in the U.S. And it gets really complicated. Um, trying to keep up with all of those things and and do the right thing. Uh, And there's been lots of players called out for maybe infringing on that and lots of opportunity to maybe take some extra steps to to improve that. I think another thing that's happened is how we share data, right? There's been massive improvements in the speed and the connectivity in which data can travel and how we can do that in more privacy-centric ways. Think data clean rooms really came on to the market recently. And, you know, the last three years or so, we've just been seeing more and more opportunities for that to ramp up and safely connect or crosswalk data. And then I think from a consumer perspective, we've 
probably just had an awareness that our data is being used. And what does that mean to us? Some of it we've seen companies take advantage of marketing to us by saying that they are privacy centric. And in other ways, we've been saying, okay, I need to take control over my data and ensure that what I'm putting out to the world on online or wherever is something that I know is it's going to be there forever, right? Like it, it leaves a mark. So how do I ensure uh, protections for, for myself and, you know, for the next generation? So thinking about the decisions that we made when we were teenagers, like, thank God we didn't have to have that broadcasted, but our teens and, you know, our children now have to think about that. And so putting those protections in place, you know, for sure are really important. So I think those are kind of the three key areas that we've seen tremendous change in data over the past few years. How big do you think, it seems like it's going to happen unless, you know, Google changes its mind, which it's done multiple times. But when third-party cookies finally go away, is it big? Is it is it much to do about nothing in between? Yeah, I think it's going to be a pretty large impact. So I saw, I was reading this morning that now it looks like in the beginning of next year, starting like the first week of January, they're going to deprecate 1% of cookies. And it, you might get you know an opportunity to participate as one of those users and testing. And then towards the, the later half of 2024, they're looking to move that number up significantly. So I think that the, the biggest impact is going to be for parties who don't necessarily collect any data whatsoever. I, I think there's going to be tremendous impact in trying to effectively target and monetize and measure what you're doing from a media perspective, as well as perhaps just like efficacy of, of your sales and, and, you know, generating all of that information, I think is going to be really complicated. I do think that brands and, you know, agencies that have their own first party data are in a pretty solid place and they'll still have opportunities to connect their data in a privacy centric way. We've seen all of these different opportunities that are popping up in ways that that will become available. You think, okay, Apple made a smart move by making everything very privacy centric, but you can also go to Apple and spend advertising. And I guarantee you they're able to match all of that data within their ecosystem, right? Same with Google, same with Facebook. So it's not necessarily a benefit to the industry or to consumers, but it is a benefit to those companies who have a lot of data. But if, you know, if brands are just now starting to think about this, I think they're in, in pretty big trouble. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if if you're just considering the ramifications of third-party cookie deprecation now, yeah, you, <laughs> you might want to look into a new career, but that's a whole other story. So back to what I mentioned earlier, where we met, it was at Advertising Week in New York this past year, and you were part of a panel titled, and I love this title, AI Ad Hyphen Ventures, get it, Ad Ventures, Applying Machine Learning to Amplify Advertising Outcomes, where on the panel, among others, you talked about how AI-powered tools are helping to empower the people and teams that bring content and advertising to life. Mm-hmm. Now, it's no secret that AI, as I now lovingly, lovingly refer to it, is the elephant in every marketer's room, right? So let me just start with a high-level kind of a word association. If I say AI, what comes to your mind uh, at a high level, and then what and how do you see it playing a role in in data and strategy going forward? Well, I don't know. When I hear the word or the, the phrase, the term AI, I think it's, 
I automatically think like in my sarcastic mind, I think the end of the world, you know, everybody's like, oh my God, it's over. (laughs) But honestly, I think that, um, I think of speed and efficacy. That's what I really think of. I, I think, you know, it's just opening up the ability for us to dig into our toolbox and say, hey, I want to do this, but I want to do it lightning fast and I want to do it in the most effective way. And if I were to use a team of scientists to figure this out, you know, it might take us a really long time to try billions and trillions of these equations to figure out which one comes out the best. But when I use AI, I'm able to do that and I'm able to train that model to get smarter over time with the more data I put through it. So for you and I as everyday people, what does that mean? Are there ways that we can apply this to our everyday life? Or are there ways that we can potentially use this in our marketing and advertising worlds to make us make smarter decisions, right? I don't want to go after someone who I know is never going to convert on my product. I want to bring awareness to people who are more likely or have a propensity to be open-minded about um, engaging with my brand, right? So it's really about just taking um, advantage of those opportunities and recognizing those opportunities to move things forward as quickly as possible instead of having to uncover them in those kind of organic grassroots ways that we did for so long that are still effective. They're just slower, right? So how do we speed that up and how do we not have waste? So we're always talking about eliminating waste as, you know, environmental waste. We're thinking about how do we not waste our energy? How do we get the most out of our day? But this is this is very true, I think, with this industry, right? How do we have less waste? And how do we be better stewards of what we're supposed to be, be executing on? And really, for me, AI is very much that tool that's going to help us to be better stewards and be accountable, right? It makes it more, more simple to be accountable. So you use the word tool, which I happen to agree with that AI is a tool. One of my fears is that marketers, advertisers, brands, what have you, will look at AI as more than a tool. And what I mean by that is become over-reliant on AI Mm -hmm. and automated processes and technologies. Do you think that could ever, we could ever get to that point where AI, you know, I know everybody's thinking about their job and if they're going to lose their job to AI, do you think there's a world where that would exist, where AI literally takes over? Or do you also envision, will marketers, I'm asking you to speak for marketers, but would marketers get too reliant on AI? I, <laughs> I, I think that AI is going to take some jobs, but I think there's many jobs that it's not going to take. You know, what I think makes marketing and advertising so beautiful is that there is a whole science side of this but there's also an art to it. There's a creativity to it. And I don't know that AI is ever going to have that, the power to think those wild thoughts that turn into amazing campaigns, right? To come up with something that is really weird. You know, I think sometimes like the weirdest stuff, I'm always like, how did that conversation happen? But it turns into something super memorable. And that's the opportunities that we're always looking to take advantage of. So I, I don't think that it's going to take a lot of the the roles that we have today. You know, it was interesting on my podcast just this week, we were talking about, oh my goodness, it was one of the dating apps. They just launched AI 
And the way that they're using it really, it, it made me chuckle because it was like, you can use AI to generate based on someone's profile, an icebreaker question to them. Like, am I so obtuse as a person that I cannot even come up with a unique question to ask someone else based on their profile? That to me is, is amazing. So I think as a society, we're getting really lazy and reliant perhaps, but as marketers, I think that we still want to tap into that creativity and uh, that opportunity to have an emotional connection with someone based on who we are and how we feel. Yeah, I, I'm keeping a hopeful eye. It's probably the best way to describe it, how advertisers and marketers utilize AI going, you know, going forward. So time will tell. Um, connected TV. I saw this stat. I could not believe this. That more than for the, for the year ending twenty twenty three, more than fifty percent of TV viewership is on connected TV. That's incredible to me. I didn't realize it was that high, and I assume it's only growing. I saw something you did. I think it might have been a year ago today, as we taped this in December. Something you did, an interview about preventing advertising fraud mm. on CTV. Mm. So I'm interested to hear you expand on your thoughts on why that's so important and how brands can in fact pre prevent, you know, fraud, advertising fraud on CTV. Yeah, that was, that must've been the beat TV interview I did back with Andy Plesser a while ago. And that, you know, it's interesting to me. I, I was even, I was having this conversation last night. I was like tucking my daughter and she wanted to know about like hackers and why do they do that? And do you ever hack anybody? And I'm like, no, <laughs> that is not part of my job. But, you know, it is interesting because as we see the evolution of advertising and the monetization of advertising, we see fraud follow, right? Sometimes it's like right there neck and neck and they are constantly getting smarter, trying to figure out ways to take money from somebody, right? Like to, to block money from someone even more so. So I think that fraud very much exists in the digital ecosystem. It will exist in CTV. CTV does have some interesting components though. When you think about Samsung ads, for example, it's more of a closed ecosystem. So tapping into any ad fraud on any of that first party data, first party inventory is, is really difficult to do, number one. But that doesn't mean that whenever you think about running on programmatic CTV, that still very much exists. So, you know, there's a number of very, you know, well-established partners that are in the space. You know, I think of human, for example, and they're, you know, they're there so that they can catch the fraud, identify it, help you to put certain flags in place to make sure that you're not, you know, falling into that trap. Because the last thing you want to do is send somebody to, you know, a, a place that is, is fraud traffic, right? It's bots. It's not humans that are actually seeing eyeballs. And then the other thing is like more about brand safety. So that's not necessarily fraud exactly, but I would still put it in the same category that brand safety and transparency on where advertising is running continues to be at the forefront of advertisers and marketers minds, right? They want to make sure that their ad is not running next to something that, you know, is negative or has negative connotation, you know, and there's been some recent just like studies around like news. News is a lot of times is negative today, but running within news doesn't necessarily make your brand negative. It's still an opportunity to reach people. And so I think that you have to just try to figure out like, how are you going to have that understanding and that balance? So, you know, you have to balance the reach, but you also have to worry about 
how am I uh, being perceived next to or wherever I am from a contextual perspective? Very interesting. And again, I did not know that CTV was that high. And I'm again, surely it's, I mean, look, we're all moving to streaming anyway. So. I mean, I cut the cord 10 years ago. I don't know about you, but it was a long time ago for me. And I never looked back. Mm -hmm. I've been, you know, primarily streaming. And I think you can like find whatever you want. There were some times I'm like, okay, I really want to watch the sports content that's live. And now it's so readily available. You know, I would say five, six years ago, it was like, all right, I need to go over to someone's house or like tap into something. I think that's part of my maybe ignorance in the, in the sense that not knowing what I don't know, assuming that I have to keep my cable because I love my local sports. Well, that's not, that was five years ago. You have options now. Yeah. And you don't have to be a Philadelphia fan. That's an option too. You know, (laughs) (laughs) uh, anyway, moving right along. (laughs) So I know you have extensive product experience and I really want to pick your brain on what I call and I just made this up, by the way, the trifecta of products mm-hmm. and what I, the trifecta I deem are product strategy, product marketing and new product launches. Okay. And I want to start with strategy because that comes first, I would think, hopefully. And I want to overlay that with data. And, and the first question is what role does data play when it comes for a brand in developing a product strategy? Well, I mean, I think that data is where you you start a lot of times because data is what feeds our ideas. So what what information are you receiving and tapping into? So this could be market intelligence. That's really important. Could be feedback from your direct existing clients. It's also extremely important. And then, you know, there's a there's a piece that data covers, but there's a piece where you've got to kind of have that gut feeling and, and have a little bit of fortune telling to know what's the market going to do what's going to happen in the future you know the saying i always am hearing is like we want to we want to skate to where the puck's going to be and so how do we really identify that and so you know you're not always going to get it right but i think that there's a few key things that you can you can leverage to to have the the best opportunity so data obviously is a huge part of that you know competitive intelligence obviously is is very helpful But I like to think of like aligning things whenever I'm thinking about it from a tech platform or a, you know, a Samsung, say, perspective. You know, I really want to be able to align over align what are our unique selling propositions, like what is unique to us? And then where is the market going and what's something that we could do maybe first or in a different way? And where do all those things align and looking at then from the top down is like, what problem are we solving? Is this actually, we could do some really cool stuff, but it's not solving a problem for the market or the people who are paying the money for for the product I'm trying to build and the solution I'm putting together. It's really worthless. So the data input from all of those pieces, I think is extremely important and packaging it up. I mean, you mentioned some other trifecta pieces there we might dive into, but it's really like, I think tying those things together and understanding what solves a problem and then what how can you do that uniquely? Yeah, I want to I want to go from there to new product launches. And I know your experience is, is primarily in the world of tech, but I we also know everybody, you know, not just tech people listen to my show, it's marketers in general. So 
I want you to come at this, if you can, agnostically of tech in terms of the role data plays when a company is considering launching a new product. What kinds of questions, what kind of data and KPIs or insights, I should say, should a company look at in doing your diligence when considering launching a new product? Yeah, I think some of the key questions you want to start out with is, who is my product for? What void does it fill? And is it replacing other products that are currently on the market? So I don't care if this is deodorant or, you know, some type of a data clean room, but you still got to think about who is this for and what is the problem that it's solving? And is it replacing something or is this a better way of doing it? I think that's really like a key starting point to think about. And next, I think you really need to think about how am I taking this to market differently? Is it packaging? Is it pricing? And understanding also, you know, what, you know, you think about what we put into the the market today. And I think, for example, there's a reason why our cars, we don't drive the same car for like 25 years, maybe like they used to, or that our, our appliances don't last as long as they used to, because they were so good. Now they're like, okay, well, they're only going to buy one of them. No, I need people to buy three or four of these in their lifetime. And so how do I make it good, but not too good? Like I want them to come back. I need repeat clientele. (laughs) So I think there's like a lot of questions that you're asking and understanding who is this for and how long is it supposed to last uh, is really like something you have to look at for you, for your brand as, as a whole. Yeah, it can, you can, I can definitely see brands and brand marketers and product marketers really going down a lot of different rabbit holes when considering a new product launch. And it could probably get overwhelming. Yeah, there's times super overwhelming. Uh, it's definitely not for the faint of heart. I mean, the thing is that there's constant shifting. There's, there's a lot of chaos and noise in the space, as you know very well. And I, you have to like kind of filter that out. You have to find that quiet space and really ask yourself what is true and what is noise. And so at the end of the day, I think it's like, how do I connect this with that consumer? I mean, that's what it is, right? We, we make emotional purchases. We try to do what's best based on data. If you're thinking more of like a B2B play, right? But you have to connect it with a solid need or a desire within the human who's buying it, whether it is B2C or B2B. You mentioned the word emotion. And, you know, I I do work with System One Group, which is a creative effectiveness platform. And everything we do is rooted in emotion. And we have a saying that goes, the more you feel, the more you buy. And it's an interesting juxtaposition, I think, from your world of data and emotion right? Like the art and science kind of conversation of marketers have to, in my opinion, walk that line of the left brain, right brain, but really never losing focus on they're still human beings we're marketing to. Mm -hmm. It's true. I, you know, I do like to geek out a little bit and I don't know if you've read Michael Lewis, he wrote Moneyball, but he also wrote the undoing project. And it was so interesting to read how there's a lot of connection that is tied to data. Like you could predict things based on data, but then there's also things that are just rooted in emotion or stereotypes that you just can't get past. And so sometimes you might always be a coffee drinker, but occasionally you're going to have a tea and then randomly you're going to have a hot chocolate. That story to me was so, I always think about that when I'm 
doing commercialization or go to market, like what if they want a hot chocolate that day and this is coffee? Or what if this is coffee, but they prefer a different, like how do you think about it in that mindset? And how do you make it that emotional connection? Because I don't know if you're a coffee drinker, but for me, coffee is very emotional. Like I need my coffee and it needs to be Bustelo and I need to have it in the morning before I have like a very in-depth conversation with anyone. So, you know, I think that it's like, what is that emotional connection and what is it that you're offering? Because, you know, you kind of got to figure out, are you going to be the occasional like tea for that person? Or are you going to be their daily coffee? And that emotion is so important. I love what system one does. I love how they are like putting that, I don't know, just deducing it, right? Like kind of taking the math out of it and just being like, hey, this is how people feel. It's very straightforward. Yeah. Well, by the way, before I forget, am I a coffee drinker? How do I scream yes? <laughs> <laughs> if I go more than 30 minutes without that cup, how's that? Does that answer your question? <laughs> um, and I would be remiss, you know, the chief innovation officer at System One, his name is Orlando Wood, brilliant guy. And he's written a couple of books and one of them is called Lookout. And there's a quote that I use all the time that goes like this. He says, advertising that elicits an emotional response and captures broad beam attention is how you build and maintain strong brands. It's mm -hmm. the emotion. It really is. So listen, I want to pivot to another topic that I know is very near and dear to your heart, and that's digital transformation. Mm -hmm. And I was reading not long ago this piece in HBR, and they quote this stat. I, I love stats. You love stats. We, marketers love stats. And it said nine in 10 large companies around the globe have a digital transformation underway. However, They've only captured 31% of the expected revenue and 25% of the expected cost savings from the digital transformation. That's a huge difference. Why is there such a dichotomy? Why is there such a disconnect between we have a digital transformation underway, but we're not reaping the rewards yet? Where do you, where do you think the breakdown is? Well, I mean, let me ask you this. When you're thinking of digital transformation, how do you define that? Because there's so many definitions. I look at digital transformation, it would involve the literal definition of going digital, right? And and mm -hmm. incorporating all things digital and adopting all things digital, however that definition manifests for a given brand, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. So in that definition of digital transformation, I think the reason why they're seeing less so far is probably a few different areas. One, I think it's how do you appear digitally across various devices? So how is my engagement with you and how is the experience as a consumer with you on my laptop different than my mobile, different than my TV? And are they all good experiences? Because I can tell you what's not a good experience is the pop-up today is like the worst thing possible. I love getting a good ad on Instagram. I will shop now all the time. It's a problem, don't tell my husband. But you know what I hate is the moment I actually get to the website to see the product and look at other pictures of the product, that there is a pop-up to subscribe to this or do this. Like, I just want to see your product for a minute. Like, you know, you don't go on a first date and, you know, get into like, can I meet your parents? It's more about like getting to know one another. I probably could have used lots of other more inappropriate things there, but we're going to stick with that one. So I think that it's like you have to have an experience that is formatted for the screen, but you also have to go back to the emotions. How does it feel if I'm in a conversation and my brand is talking through what's on the screen to this consumer and the consumer, how do they feel about it in that moment? Because I can tell you, I don't like feeling attacked. 
I'll be like, eh, I'm done. I'm exiting mm-hmm. out of it. I don't even want to look at this anymore because I feel very like it, this is in my face. So I think that's one key area is like, what does it appear across the different screens? Two is I think that you need to know your audience and how you know your audience in the physical world is very different than how you know your audience in the digital world. There's a ton of data and information we can create to segment our audiences and understand how they tick, what drives them, how do we group them together and how can I better understand the lifetime value of that audience segment? So for example, you may have, you know, a, a single young woman who is interested in being a shopper, but maybe the mom who's 20 years older, who is purchasing for the entire household has a lot more buying power, but how I speak to those two people are going to be very different. The other thing I think about is, you know, I, I am like very interested in and active in the the DEI community. And I've also worked with um, a nonprofit called Bridge, which is great. If you haven't heard of it, check it out. We are Bridge. It's amazing what they're doing. Cheryl Dyja, a friend of mine, founded that. But I remember in the early days before she had even launched, she told me the story we were talking about. She was saying, you know, do you ever think about why, you know, the traditional razor brands didn't take off in some of these other ways that like a bevel did? And so you had this razor brand that took off, did wonderful, and it was targeted towards the African-American men because their hair grows a little bit different. So they made a specific razor for them. And she was saying, well, it's because they didn't have the right people at the table. It's not because they didn't want to make more money or they didn't want to go after the black community, the African-American community, however you want to say it, but it's because they didn't have the right people at the table in the room to give different perspectives. So I would say digital transformation takes a lot of different perspectives. So I don't know if that's necessarily a DEI problem, but it's also it is a problem there for sure. But I'm saying it's not just that problem. It's that problem that is bigger to say, who do you have at your table when you're making these decisions? Do you have a diverse input to make sure you're arriving at those right decisions that open up a lot more opportunities across the board so that you can market your product to all of these segments? It's fascinating. And not to put words in your mouth, but what I'm hearing is you think that the reason for the disconnect is the nine and 10 companies who are who say they have a digital transformation underway are not measuring is that the right word? Or not, they didn't strategize the right way going into this. So when they look at the numbers, the results, they're disappointing, but maybe they're not looking at it in the right right way in the first place. Well, I think measurement's a huge, a huge challenge too. How you measure in one capacity is very different than how you measure in another capacity, right? And, you know, I think that when you think even going back to the very first, one of the very first questions you asked me about data and the differences and like where we might be going with all of this cookie future and the amount of data we're going to lose or opportunities we're going to lose. It is that, right? You you may see a hundred people walk in and out of your door physically, but you don't have a hundred digital footprints in and out that door physically. You don't have a hundred mobile signals in and out that door, you know, digitally. So I think that like, you can't equate apples to apples. This is a whole different measurement ballgame. Right. Looking back at your career, is there one person would you say has had the biggest impact? Yeah, I would definitely say one of the co-founders of Digital Envoy, Rob Friedman. He was the EVP when I was there, was my boss for my entire tenure, eight and a half years. We're still good friends. He's still impactful to me. (laughs) I still think of him as a friend tour, but 
you know, he really guided me in so many different ways. So I think from a product strategy and just a career strategy perspective, he gave me so much insight in how to deal with career politics, how to deal with just, you know, how do you, how do you make sure that everybody kind of gets their way and make everybody feel important? He did a really great job of, of that. And he always supported me. So I think that just like his day-to-day advice was always so welcomed, but our our friendship and the uniqueness of our relationship was always that we told we still tell the truth 100% of the time, but we don't walk away offended. And both of us can be extremely harsh to one another, but we would always, I would say, sharpen ideas. We would go in with some really dumb things that, you know, one or two of us would say, and then he would come out, we would like refine it. And it was coming up with cool stuff because of we checked our emotions at the door. So he just has had such a good impact. And um, yeah, I'm really grateful for him. I love it. It's, it's a mutual respect, which is so key to any relationship. It is. And, you know, I think it's hard to find that as a young woman, like having a mentor that really is like invested in you as a person. And that always, you know, was like, it it was never an issue that I was a woman. It was never an issue. You know, it was like just investing in my life and my career. And that's so, so important because I think there's, I could count millions of times that that wasn't the case. Right. So this one just really, yeah, I'm very, very thankful. So looking we're going to wrap up soon, but listeners to my podcast will know I always end referencing the album wall behind me, which I know you can't see, but I'm a big music fan and I'm very eclectic in my taste as well. And one of my, if not my favorite song of all time is a song called Lean On Me by Bill Withers. It's from the 70s. Yes, I'm showing my age. But the lyrics have always resonated with me. And I always like to ask my guest, is there a song that stands out for you? Are there, is, is it a certain lyric and why? You know, this is a really difficult question, Steve, because I feel like there's different songs that definitely connect with me at different points in my life or moments. So it could be songs about my faith. It could be songs about the fiesta. You know, it could be salsa. It could be classic rock, whatever. Um, But I think the song I would probably choose to say that I feel like has been with me. I, I I go back to seventh grade is Tom Petty, Wildflowers. (laughs) And, you know, I always have had this feeling as a, as a person, and I think I've carried it with me for as long as I can remember that, you know, I don't quite fit in, right? I'm not cookie cutter. I had a lot of differences growing up. I moved around a lot. I've moved 52 times. Like, you know, I think that I've always kind of had like this wild hair and I can just make friends anywhere, but I don't necessarily fit in completely everywhere. And now I think of that song as I think about my two daughters and it's like, you know what? I am okay with not fitting in now. And I feel like I'm trying to pass that on to them that, you know what? It's okay not to be cookie cutter and not to be the status quo and not to have that Ivy League education because you are enough as a person. And I think that being wild and being weird, it makes you memorable. So that's my, that's my choice. (laughs) I cannot end the show any better than that. So With that, I will say thank you for coming on. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you, Steve. Thank you so much. Well, that wraps up another episode of the CMO Whisperer Show. I hope you shared this episode with your friends. And if you have not already, please subscribe to be kept up to date on all the latest episodes. And if you're so inclined, leave me a review 
on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you. Thank you.